Welcome. Welcome to Conversations in Compassion, a podcast by Dignity May, a program of Agape. And made possible by the contributions to Agape. Thank you. This is a different podcast. Instead of interviews, we have conversations. This is my attempt to demonstrate examples of what I call compassionate conversation. Through these conversations, I hope to address the discord in our families, in our communities, and in ourselves. And finally, to focus on the greatest need of our time, the need for compassion. So I'm... uh doing a quick intro here to this incredible podcast and with Matt and uh, I know it's been a hard couple of weeks for him. The, I call the podcast the revolution of compassion. And one of the things we really explore in this is the duality, the duality between when you see the pain of another When you witness that pain, one of two things will happen. You will lean towards love and compassion and understanding, or you will lean towards fear, and you will want to not see it anymore. And we're in a community at a time. We're right in the middle of that question. I hope we resolve it towards love. Enjoy this podcast. Yeah, so there was a prayer that was gifted to me by somebody in recovery, um, and it was authored by a man named Father Michael Judge. He was a Franciscan priest, a recovering alcoholic, chaplain of the New York City Fire Department, and he was killed on 9-11, um, praying over firefighters, even though he was told to get the heck out of that lobby, he wouldn't do it. Um, and it goes like this. Take me where you want me to go. Let me meet who you want me to meet. Tell me what you want me to say and keep me out of your way. Take me where you want me to go. Let me meet who you want me to meet. Tell me what you want me to say and keep me out of your way. And uh, it's a dangerous prayer, in my opinion, because if you say that with intention, People will come across your path that you can serve and love and and help. That's been my experience. So uh, first I would just say thank you for doing this with us. And also, uh, this is a a conversation that I just want to start with gratitude for uh, the work that you're doing uh, with the unhoused, with the people that are suffering uh, in our community and uh, with substance misuse and all of the struggles that come with people having to uh, figure out how to survive and thrive uh, in our community. So I wanted to start this and probably end it with uh, thank you, Matt, for all that you do and your partner and all of the people around you. Well, I appreciate that, Stephen, and it's a privilege to do the work. It's a privilege to do the work. I can't imagine wanting to do anything else, especially right now. There's, um, there's this conflict 
that is so powerful that we live with in this community. And then on one hand, we're trying to be kind and generous. And, and this is the other part that uh, sweeps uh, whole homes up and moves people along. And every single time we lose a person, if not more, uh, in the sweep. Uh, there's almost a, a, a callousness uh, about the, their a blemish on our community, their tents and their city and all of that, and we have to sweep them up because they've been there too long. What, what, are, you, what are you thinking about when you think about all that? Well, I could be here for hours talking about that. We've been through six of these, I believe, all six of them, and it's a horrific thing to witness. Um, this last one was particularly hard because at least at the other sweeps, there were alternatives. Oh, well, this is horrible that they're doing this, but we can go over to Deering Oaks Park. And then, oh, this is horrible that they're doing this, but let's regroup. They can go to Marginal Way. This one, there is nowhere else for people to go, and we knew that. You know, um, the other piece of it is I work at a funeral home part time. I respond to death calls. I pulled bodies of friends out of tents out there. Mm. So when you say we lose people after every sweep, I know that on a, on a different level. Mm. And um, so the urgency and the life and death struggle that we're dealing with here is always on my mind. Every time I see somebody, it's just going to be the last time I see him. Every time we have a sweep, we lose track of people mm. and all of our wonderful volunteers on hope squad. We're all huddling together going, have you seen, have you seen him? Have you seen her? Where are they? Mm. Are they deep in the woods? This is how people die mm. when they're, when they're together. And, and I think people don't understand the sense of community that they do have with each other. They mm. save each other's lives multiple times a day out there. Mm. Um, but once somebody gets separated mm. um, and isolated, which happens after every one of these, there's a scattering effect that happens. Um, we all lose track of them and that's so dangerous, you know? So there's a million different thoughts going through my head. And then just the visual of the equipment, Mm. you know, chewing up people's homes and standing mm. next to people as they're watching this happen to their home. People might look at that, not look at that as a home, but it is their home. And it's all they got. It's all that uh, they have. And it's world. everything is contained in that. And you said something incredibly beautiful about, you know, then once this happens that people just out of safety, try to start to isolate themselves and they go out into the woods. And, and this is really where people die. It's in isolation, not in community. In community, they they really honestly are taking care of each other, um, you know. And uh, you, we know it. And at the same time, what what could be behind this uh, idea that we can't see this anymore? That these people cannot be seen. Boy, I wish I knew the answer to that one. I don't. I don't know. But that—that's—that's that's what I feel. I feel like folks want them to disappear, and I don't know. Part of me thinks, well, is it because when you see this, you have to make a decision in your own heart and soul? What does this mean for me now that I'm seeing this person? Am I going to pretend not to see him? I've done that at a at a traffic light when somebody's panhandling and pretend to look the other way. I, you know, I've, I've done that before. As much as I love everybody out there, there's been times where I've done it, you know. But there's a challenge. Once you meet them eye to eye, look them in the eye, 
which is what we always do out there and call them by name, you know, and actually see it, you know, um, then you have to make a decision. What do I think about that? Do I want to do anything about that? Do I even care about that? Um, so I don't know if it's folks going, I don't want to see this because if I do, I've got to make this horrific realization that in 2023, we are allowing this to happen to our fellow human beings. I don't know. It's, it, there's something there that you're saying that, you know, that when we see it, we're called into question and we're uncomfortable with the question. So can we ask somebody to move people along? Can we sweep them out? Can we get rid of the view of them? Because if they're in view, which is usually the sweeps come as the community grows and therefore they're more seen. And the minute they're seen in a large community, then there's this idea that we've got to get rid of this, the site. And I loved what you said, you know, you're called into question what you see. You lean towards love or you lean away from it into fear. Absolutely. And, and I've heard neighbors say in that York Street area, I'm afraid. I saw someone at the street corner and they were talking to themselves, yelling at themselves, yelling at me. And I have to remember too, I've, I've been around that for 30 something years. So for me, I don't necessarily bat an eye at that, but I also have to look at the other side. Well, if I'd never been exposed to something like that, I could see where maybe somebody would be fearful about that. But then do you have the willingness to dig into that a little bit deeper and say, well, what was going on with that person? As opposed to just staying in that fear and saying, I don't want to know anymore. This is bad. I don't want to see this. I don't want to look at this. I don't want to hear this. And, the, I and I want to pick up the phone and I want to call the city and I want to say, please move this. I don't want to look at it. Right. I don't want to see this person with a psychosis talking out loud which is really a trauma of their lives talking out loud. And it terrifies me because I don't understand it. Right. And you said something about love. I mean, I, I feel like the only reason I'm here is to, is to love. That's it. I don't understand anything. Anything else doesn't make any sense, you know? And, um, I've had the benefit of being in recovery for a long time and, and working on a relationship with a higher power of my own understanding who I call less Lum, by the way. <laughs> and Less is love's eternal spirit and mm. Lum, the last name, is life's unfathomable mystery. You know, I came from a very dogmatic Catholic household and God had a beard and he was really mad at you and that kind of stuff. But what I've settled on now is that my religion is love. Mm. My job is to love without any limits at all. And, you know, I don't know that that's everybody's perspective. You know, I don't know. But I think at some point in your life, you got to ask yourself that question. And I think this kind of puts it front and center because the suffering is intense. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's hard to, to watch, to witness, and to carry it with people if you're willing to do that. If you keep a distance from it, then maybe you can kind of skate by. But if you actually dive in there with someone, inquire about the, the pain and the suffering, then it's, it, it's tough, you know, but I think it's well worth it. And there's uh, the epidemic of loneliness that, uh, you know, Dr. Par Murphy, who was our sort of surgeon general, says, uh, you know, that, that, we, that the time is now to move towards this kindness, this love that you're talking about, this mystery. Because people are not going to get better 
unless we lean towards that. And then we have this process where we can't, we can't see it. We're terrified of it. We don't want to be called into question that we're not very loving. Yeah. Uh, one of my spiritual heroes, and I have a bunch, was Dorothy Day. Mm. Um, and back in the 30s, you know, she said, we need a, a revolution of the heart. Mm. And here we are 100 years later, and mm. I think we need it more than ever. Right. Um, if we're going to get through this, um, I, I don't see any other way to do it than that. Um, but I don't know if there's a collective will to have that revolution of the heart or not. And that's what's, it's kind of sad to think about that. I don't know. It's a very me, me, me culture, you know, mm. that we have and look at me and check this out. And what, how many likes did I get on the Facebook and mm. defining ourselves by how other people might see us as opposed to ourselves um, and what we're doing here. And our actions. Yeah. And our loving action. And that we can, we can feel, we've got this moment in time in this community where that on one hand, you, you get people that come out of the woodwork to help you. Mm -hmm. They really want to love. They want to show up and they do it on free will. They don't get paid. They don't. And then you've got this other policy protocol, whatever you might get. Oh, it's too big. Let's sweep it. You know, you got a week to go before we take down your home or sweep this and almost disappear you. We have these two things that are going on that almost represent this love and fear. Yeah. How, how do you move that needle to the revolution of love? Well, it's funny when we, when we, put the hope squad thing together. I thought it would be me and a couple of knucklehead friends of mine driving around with some hot chocolate. And, and then, and then my <laughs> wife and we, that's, that is how it started. You yes. Know? Um, although my friend wasn't a knucklehead, she was wonderful. But, um, then my wife said, let's put this on, let's put a Facebook group together. Maybe we have the opportunity to educate people mm. on what's going on here. And as soon as we did that, people just came from north, south, east, and west. How can I help? So I think there was people that saw this. It mattered to them. It hurt them to see people hurting, but they didn't have a vehicle. They didn't know what, what would be my first step to do this. Maybe for Outreach can be scary. Yeah. My wife, the, the, God bless my wife, she'd never done anything like this before. And the first day she went out, uh, we're, you know, thigh deep in snow going down these railroad tracks and there's a gentleman, you know, high on methamphetamines. That's, if you've never seen that before, that can be a little bit scary, but mm. God bless her. She stepped through in faith w with me, you know, and did that. And so I think there might be, people might want to help, but I don't know what that looks like for me, but these people came out of the woodwork and we have the most amazing group of people. I'm so privileged to know and be friends with these people. One of them, um, you know, brought a lady to the, um, to the shelter the other night, Saturday night after the sweep, she's been sleeping outside for years and she trusted her enough, mm. uh, to let her take her down there. And she stayed with her during the whole intake process, which is intimidating and mm. long and scary. And just watching and witnessing that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So I feel like there are a ton more people out here that care about this than I realized they just need a vehicle on, hey, here's a way maybe you could do this or maybe explore this or that. Um, so I don't know if it's just educating people more um, because once you make, in my opinion, once you make the human connection 
whether you've had experience doing this or not, once you're sitting with somebody in a tent or out in this environment and you see the pain and you enter into the pain and you look them in the eye and you call them by name, something happens if you've got a heart there, you know, um, and then you can't, you can't go back you, at uh, that point. Yeah. There's you, no, there's no going back at that point. Yeah. Once you start loving. Yeah. We had, uh, I remember one day after a real hard uh, outreach day, my wife said, I don't feel like we're doing anything at all. They're still homeless. They're still dying. They're still sick and all this kind of stuff. And I said, you're doing something by your loving, compassionate presence. And, but she wasn't buying it. Um, but then a few days later, um, we're down near some railroad tracks again. And uh, a young lady that we have gotten to know saw my wife and their eyes met and she got teary eyed and she ran towards my wife and she goes, thank you for not forgetting me. Mm -hmm. And then I turned to my wife and I said, that's what I'm talking about right there. You can't put that on a spreadsheet or document that for the city of Portland or anything like that. But her eyes lit up like a Christmas tree the second she saw you because you have showed up here every week said her name out loud and listened to her and what she's going through. That's huge. For all you know, she might've been thinking about ending her life today. And because you saw her and heard her, she didn't do it. Right. It's a mystery. We don't know, but. Um, and that's what you said was your higher source, the mystery. Yeah. The mystery. We, we show up at these moments and we look at people in the eyes and. We treat them with gentleness and kindness and compassion. Yeah. And then all of a sudden something moves within them. Yeah. And that may be what we have. And then we have this other process of terror in our communities that won't sweep people up and cause them to feel even more shame, more toxic shame yeah. of who they are. Yeah. What I, what I told this, one of the, one of the meetings at city hall, I spoke in front of the commissioners or, or whatever. And I said, shame on you for making a decision to sweep unless you are willing to stand there. This is Matt's opinion. Nobody else's. Unless you're willing to stand there in the middle of a trail while this is going on from beginning to end from seven o'clock when the police show up seven 30, when the trucks roll in eight o'clock when the front end loaders start cranking up and they surround people, unless you stand there and you watch that and watch that for eight, nine, 10 hours and look people in the eye and watch what they're going through as this is happening to them. Then you tell me that that's the only choice that you have, but you're, you're never out here. Right. You don't see this stuff. You know, as far as I'm concerned, unless you watch the impact that that has on your fellow human beings that you're supposed to be protecting and serving, there's no way you have any right to make a decision like this. That's just, that's just Matt's opinion. But Yeah. Um, and you can feel it that unless you decide to do compassion and kindness, that you're going to look at people in the eyes, you can sweep them. If you're going to look at them in the eyes and say to them, I'm, I'm here for you, even in this context, but if you do it from someplace else and you're sitting there in your rival tower, your home, your warmth, and you don't have any sense of looking at somebody in the eye, then you're not doing love. You're not doing compassion. You're not even doing service. No. And, and the other thing that I said is that, you know, everyone 
is individual here. There's four or 500 people sleeping outside. Each mm. one has their own unique mm. history with trauma or whatever it is. To have a cookie cutter approach going, listen, you need to get inside. Yeah. And you need to go to 654 Riverside Street because that's our solution to this. Get in there. What is your problem? Right. What do you mean? That's not taken into account. I said, you need to know folks. You need to inquire about what do you need? Like, what about a shelter scares you? Let's not do that. Right. What about a shelter feels bad to you? It's institutional, whatever. How can we change that a little bit? You know, be inquisitive about what might help them. You know, to me, several smaller shelters that cater to individual needs around mental health, substance mm -hmm. use, the elderly, people with developmental disabilities. You know, mm -hmm. there's a small shelter called Elena's Way, and I've seen how that works. And that works, in my opinion, a lot better than the bigger one, which at times can feel like a warehouse. There's people in there working real hard to, to make it better. But I feel like that other approach is better. It's more personal. I hear staff talking to folks there and there's a communal feel that you can, you can see it there and feel it. Um, so, so that really bothers me too, that it's basically, this is the solution you need to get in here. And if you don't get in here, then you're going to go to jail. You're going to get charged with a crime. Why would you not want to do this? You dodo. Right. We we're providing you a warm place with a bed. And yes, there are 75, 100, 150 beds. And yes, you can be terrified even by the intake process. But the truth of the matter is that's our solution for you. That's all you deserve. Right. And you're sitting there going, what happens with small cadres, tiny facilities that are 15 or 20 people? They're specialized in staff understand psychosis. Mm -hmm. They understand substance misuse. They understand what's going on. They understand that couples need to stay together. They understand that somebody has a cat and they're not going to go into any shelter without their cat because that's all their attachment is. That's it. But again, you've got this cookie cutter. Yeah. Or if they're angry, let's say. Mm. There's fear under there. Mm. One of the things I learned in law enforcement dealing with folks that were in mental health crisis, when there was aggression, mm. anger, 99 times out of 10, that doesn't add up, 99 times out of 100. <laughs> <laughs> it's fear under there once you're willing to sit there and spend time and peel yeah. the layers away, as opposed to saying, don't, don't yell at me, get out of here. Mm. You know, how about saying, geez, I wonder... I bet people that have been outside for a couple of years probably aren't feeling that great. <laughs> they might be angry. They, they might be angry and they might be coming in because they feel this is the only choice and it's not a choice they'd like to make, but they don't want to die. So they're coming in here and maybe a different approach to say, I'm going to give this person a little more latitude mm. and maybe try to figure out, or maybe when they come in the door, I'm going to say, I'm so glad you got inside. Mm. Glad you're here. We don't want to overwhelm you with a lot of stuff, but we're going to show you around and uh, we're just glad that you're in the building. Mm. And, you know, things like that, I think, could go a long way. It doesn't cost a dime to do any of that stuff. Right. And to be skillful at empathy in that moment uh, where somebody is even angry, uh, you can gently guess what it must be like to be them. And you know, it, the narrow systems begin to lower. And people are less angry. And underneath it is what you said, which is fear. And underneath that is the hurt and the trauma that they've been carrying in their body. Yeah. 
And if, and if people have been in institutions multiple different times of different types, whether it's a mental health facility or a jail or things like that, and the place looks and feels institutional in a lot of ways, if you've been inside of it, to have an awareness of that mm. and then say, how can I do something different mm. then? Mm. If it feels institutional, I probably shouldn't stand here with a clipboard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or I have a long intake packet or, right. or, or uh, suggest that you, ha that you have to put your things there, not there. And right. you know, all these power and control questions. Things and, you can't do. Right. You know, and let me read you the list that you've got to sign off on of the things you can't do while you're here. Yeah. As a probation officer, it took me years to realize that instead of rattling off the list of conditions of you don't mm. do this, don't do that. Then I started going, hey, man, what happened to you mm. in jail? Tell me about what's been going on the last three or four years. And mm. then all of a sudden this unbelievable biography would come out mm. that I could work with. I'm like, uh-huh. You know, because I was all fixated on you. You shall not drink. You shall not use drugs to accept, you know, blah, 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 blah. Right. And a sign here at the bottom. And, and now we're going to hold to this as soon as you walk out my door. That's right. We're going to drug test you. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to check in on you. We're going to snoop around your house. We're going to do whatever we have to do. And once I just flipped it mm. and I put the paperwork away and I just said, you know, Jim, what's been going on? Mm. That must have been really hard to be at a U.S. penitentiary. Mm. I've heard that's a terrible experience. Do you mind sharing with me? And then whew, right. all of a sudden you're, you're getting information that you could use to, to help them connect with that person. So maybe that could be applied there. I don't know. Well, then you, then you hold that story, you listen to the story, and then the conditions start to make sense to the story rather than the power over. And just holding people with great compassion. As you said, just ask the open-ended question and listen and be reflective in nature. And somehow we, I mean, I loved your demand. Like if you're going to do a sweep, if you're going to be a policymaker, go down there at seven o'clock in the morning when the police show up and stay until they finish and watch what it feels like and experience what it feels like and look at people in the eyes. And if you're still willing to do the sweep, even if it means one, two or three deaths, then it's, then I'm, I'm fine. But you have to look at people in the eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Not from across the street, you know, whatever. But, um, and you know, I, every time I've done one of these, I've cried like a baby at different points and I can feel a pain in my chest watching yeah. the, the, you know, the machines closing in as people are furiously trying to grab things out of their tent and the people going, why they've known about this for two days. Why wouldn't they have gotten everything out? Instead of thinking like maybe they were hoping against hoping against hope yeah. that the city would say, you know what, this is, what are we doing? Let's not do this. And, and even the concept of why haven't they thought about it two days? Does, does nobody understand that that's a luxury to think about two days from now? That's a luxury. Yeah. That the only luxury you have is the moment, the moment you're in. Right. You know, and so... We project, like they knew about this for the last two days. Why didn't they do anything? We project this ideology that you have the capacity to do that in the first place. When trauma and shame says, no, you don't have that. You have a capacity to breathe today and that's it. Yeah. That's all you got. Yeah. And so I really appreciate, you know, like 
it, there's all these excuses, all of them. We have, we have 150 beds set aside. We built for them. We have this, we have that. We, we give them notice. We tell them that we're going to do this. We, all of these things. And they have no concept what it's like. People are not choosing to live in tents and freezing cold. They're doing it because that's the best survival they can have. Exactly. People want to be understood. If I could take one lesson from 35 years of doing, working with this population, marginalized populations, whether it's probation officer, peer sport, counselor, milestone, all the different things I've done, I feel like people have a deep need to be understood. Mm. That's it. And then it, then it's easy to figure out what to do. When, when I, when I remind myself of that, this person wants to be understood. How can I do that? Well, shut up and listen, <laughs> look them in the eye, just the way you look at someone. One mm. of my favorite philosophers, John O'Donnell, the Irish philosopher, John mm. O'Donnell, would say the way that we behold them can change the way that they behold themselves. Right. You know, right. if this person's looking at me like, my God, this person really cares. They love me, you know? Mm. Let me think about that for a second. I think there's an incredible power in that. Just thinking about how am I looking at somebody? Right. Like if a police officer goes, geez, I'm wearing all this equipment. You know, I look like I'm heading to Afghanistan or whatever. Maybe I should be aware of how I'm looking at the person. Mm -hmm. um, I saw a police officer, a beautiful police officer one time, huge guy. I felt like he was eight feet tall. <laughs> and I had a guy that wanted to take his life that I was talking to by the cathedral on, on um, Congress Street. Mm -hmm. And when he got out of the cruiser, I thought, oh, damn, we're in trouble. Because <laughs> the visual was scary. Right, right. But he went across the street and he kneeled in front of this guy mm -hmm. and put his hands on his shoulder. And he's like, hey, brother, I, Matt tells me you're having a hard day. You want to tell me about it? And I just like, that's a beautiful example. Mm -hmm. Because he didn't look real friendly when he jumped out of that car. Right. But he was aware of that, you know, and the way that he beheld that person and listened to that person, that guy was jumping in the car with him in 10 minutes to get some help, you know. So just thinking about things like that. To understand another. Mm -hmm. You know, to really, to make sure that everybody that comes across your sight feels heard and believed and seen and valued. Right. That's on the side of the ambulance. We see you, we hear you, you matter. That's our, that's our thing. Well, I want to thank you again for the work you're doing. And I hope this uh, little podcast uh, uh, gives people a chance to uh, sit with their fear and make a different decision. I hope so, too. Thank you for the opportunity. Great. Great to be with you. Take me where you want me to go. Let me meet who you want me to meet. Tell me what you want me to say. And keep me out of your way. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. And I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you hear, please consider subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts. I'd like to give a heartfelt thanks to all the contributors to Agape Inc. 
for their support in making this podcast possible. If you care to join us, please go to DignityMain.com to get involved. Thank you. Thank you again for being here. And take good care.